Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the Great Northern Hotel in St. Pancras slash King's Cross, one of the many attempts to redevelop this area and turn it from a drug addict's haven to a frequent polluter's haven. And I'm here in a bar, restaurant, called, what's it called, Ranjini? It's uh, Plum and Split Plum and Split Milk. Plum and Split Milk, not yes. Spilt Milk. Oh, sorry, Spilt Milk. There's no use crying <laughs> over Split Milk. Yes. Or milk split from milk. Split. Yes. Split is a town, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, enough incredibly amusing punning for the moment. And the reason I'm here is to speak to you, Ranjini Masundar, about your work. Now, you're in London not just for five minutes being a frequent polluter. You actually are residing here at present for a while. For one year. For one year. I'm on a Marie Curie um, European Union Fellowship um, affiliated with the University of Westminster. And what are you doing on the fellowship? Uh, this was a fellowship that I got to work on the 1960s. Uh, the Indian cinema's um, global encounter with the 60s. Mm -hmm. So I framed it as a context of the global 60s and what it meant for different parts of the world. And rather than assume that it was a particular kind of narrative in one or two parts of the world, to try and see what happened in different places. And mm -hmm. India is my uh, site. Particular interest. When people talk about the 60s, India is a crucial place in many people's fantasies as somewhere to go for Europeans and US people to discover themselves anew in the 60s. It's not always catalogued as one of the places where the 60s happened themselves in the same way as Prague or Mexico City or Paris. You're going to set that to rights. Yeah, because it's not true because um 60s, uh, there's a 60s moment in different parts of the world, including mm. in India, and certainly in the second half of the 60s, there was a um, pretty uh, well entrenched and strong Maoist movement, mm. and there was general student unrest and youth mobilizations taking place across the country. Because this was the first uh, major decade of protest against the government because you know we've just been through 15 16 years of independence the euphoria was over unemployment was on the rise and uh, there was general dissatisfaction so there is unrest even in india and that's why i do think that the 60s is genuinely a global moment yeah but it has had different kinds of um, articulation yeah. in different parts yeah. of the world yeah. and uh, trying to fix it in one form would not be, uh, enable us to really understand what's going on. Well, Maoism is particularly interesting given that the 60s begin with a war between India and China. Yes, 62. 1962 is the war with China where India is actually defeated uh, and it's a real setback and the first public shaming of the nationalist uh, state. And it's also the crisis of Nehruvian, beginning of the crisis, crisis. of Nehruvian India. And um, I mean, he's assassinated a couple of years later. He's only. not assassinated. Oh, he, he dies. He died. In 64. In 64, he died in 64. So, by the middle of the decade, yeah. before the great upheavals of the 60s in the West plus Latin America, there has been this convulsive experience of... Mm -hmm 
the loss of the father of the state and the loss of this war. Yes, absolutely. And so this is the moment where cinema turns to consumption in a big way. Right. Uh, and it takes a, and this is also the moment where black and white cinema is the end of, uh, or a transition from black and white cinema to color. And I'm tracking the uh, sort of relationship between turbulence and cinematic practice and what was going on in cinema at that time. And when there are big technological changes of that kind, whilst cinema traditionally, we can now say over its life, adapts quite well, it's tumultuous if you're in the middle of it. Thank you very much. As a worker and indeed as a spectator, when there's a sudden change like that, a change from black and white to colour. Absolutely. And the biggest change in India, and few people recognize, um, realize this, and I stumbled upon it only during the course of my research, that the disputed territory of Kashmir, which has sort of had this long legacy of crisis and violence, um, uh, Kashmir becomes, uh, sort of gets domesticated. Uh, and emerges as a space to visit only after the transition to color. Because all the films start, they suddenly move to Kashmir, and Kashmir is this new site that mm. they, are, they have discovered. So the form in cinema changes in the 1960s, so there's a lot of outdoor shooting. Yes. New cameras have arrived, and the Eastman color uh, enables yeah. them to discover location so they move out of studios and the the site that they really romanticize mm. is Kashmir. It's Kashmir. And no. it's, Sorry, go ahead. So it's this more place where everyone, the youth are going off to, to discover love and experience and you don't Can I find that if I go there? <laughs> no longer. Not right now. Not right no. now. Now, I, can I ask you a question about Eastman Color because of course one of the controversies at the time it's developed in the United States is about skin tone and as you know well the ideal skin tone for that color stock was white a white female with blonde hair was actually at the beginning of much of the film stock wasn't she so what what issues does that raise for the different skin tones the different phenotypes of south asian actors no the biggest uh, issue for the transition to color in mm. india the biggest issue for um, actresses and also actors was makeup and mm. color mm. i mean of course this was a worldwide problem even in hollywood but in india it was a particular problem yeah. because lightening the skin was such an has been an issue even now and um, so um, it wasn't such a um, issue linked only to East Wind color. Just the transition to color yeah. meant this was going to be a problem, and actresses who were not uh, light skin had to be lightened up, and and this is an anxiety for um, lots of people at that time. And in fact, there's one of the one great accident in. Uh, it happens by chance, but it's the moment that I'm trying to look at. This Anglo-Indian, she's not Anglo-Indian, she's half French, half Burmese act, uh, uh, actress, dancer actually, Helen. She moves from Burma to India in 1947 as a refugee, as a child. And then she comes to Bombay and um, she's a good dancer and enters the film industry. So initially she's made to look Chinese and Japanese because that's the... Um, 
enemy that Indian cinema is uh, creating in cinema in the black and white period. So she, because she fit that profile, but very soon with the transition to color, she emerges as blonde hair, blue eyed and completely reinvents herself because her accent was different. She was very light skinned and so she becomes the quintessential white band dancer in the period of color. So her entire facial transformation takes place because she could really handle um, uh, screen presence with very little makeup. Now, is she the one that Merchant Ivory make the film about? Yes, absolutely. Helen Queen of the... Absolutely, a queen of the notch girls. Queen of the notch girls. Yes. I, you know, I knew uh, Merchant. Really? Yeah. Oh. And I actually, and Jim as well, I knew both of them. Okay. And they showed me that film when I was a teenager. Yeah, it made a big impact on me. Really? Yeah. This is amazing, Toby. Uh, you, do you have a copy of it? I have seen the documentary entirely on YouTube. I don't have a copy of it. I saw yeah. it on, would have been 16mm yeah. in 1974. And it's unusual that they decided to make a film on her, but this is also an issue they don't actually discuss about her whiteness. And whiteness no, it's, is it's something not that she herself starts to create for herself. Well, also, it's not exactly what people think of as a Merchant Ivory film. No, is exactly. It? No. It's completely different from all yes. the others that they yes. did. Yes. Anyway, enough of my trying to make myself a story. Sadly, we have to go back to you now. Right. <laughs> Was there Maoism in the film industry, either in terms of industrial organization or screenwriting tendencies or themes, interest in the peasantry? No, social unrest, um, social criticism, interest in the peasantry, even in the working class, um, these are there throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, but it comes in a peculiar form um, in the songs because the writers, they come from the progressive writers movement. There was a very powerful progressive writers movement and an Indian People's Theatre Association. So many of these people actually joined the film industry from these sectors. And so you can see the influence of revolutionary poetry in the songs, in the lyrics. And um, the, um, the real influence of Maoism in um, Cinema, I would say, comes a little later in the 70s, in the early 70s. And it's not, I won't say it was Maoism. By then, it's a much wider political um, uh, movement in the country. There are many different groups. There are communists, there are socialists, and there are student movements led by a figure called Jay Prakash Narayan. He uh, also plays a role. And there's a very major 1973 railway strike, um, which sort of, you know, uh, escalates into something. And then after that, in cinema, you can only see social unrest. Interesting. So, but the 60s, the late, the 60s mm. period is a kind of honeymoon period. It's like the discovery of Kashmir, uh, enjoying color, encounter with the global world. So we have a lot of films set in Paris, in Tokyo, in London, in Rome. Um, and it's a um, it's a period where um, the infrastructure that India had at that time, which included railways, aviation, the automobile industry, mm. there's an exploration of all these infrastructural mm. forms via cinema. Speaking of which, I do hope you or somebody else will be making a film about the suspension of manufacture of the ambassador. I know. News that struck me 
to the core of my being <laughs> last week. What is going on? Yeah. The sky has fallen in. It's all very well for India to become neoliberal, but they can't stop making ambassadors run. They have. They are. They, they've closed shop. You're breaking an a, old man's heart. I know. It also breaks my heart because I, I at one point really wanted to do a um, documentary, make a documentary. Uh, on the ambassador, not as a promotional film, but a, a but an um, object that would enable me to track colonial, post-colonial uh, yeah. history from yeah. the English Morris yeah. to the ambassador. Yes. yes. To the ambassador's struggle to survive uh, when the Japanese Suzuki enters in the 1980s, and so then the ambassador becomes the nationalist car trying to fight all these foreign cars, and it becomes the car of the state. The yeah. Government. Yeah. So through this history, one can actually really talk about the 20th century and what yes, happened. Yes. Yes. I can well imagine. Um, I wondered if we could veer off the 60s for a moment, actually, because you've just raised a topic, or we've raised a topic, but I'd love for you to explain a bit about to listeners before we get on to your books. I'd love you to talk about your filmmaking a bit, if you could run us through your history as a filmmaker. Uh, both for television and, and elsewhere, for people to learn a bit about. Yeah. By the way, Nehru died from a heart attack, didn't he? Yeah. Why did I say he was assassinated? Because there have been so many assassinations. <laughs> and 60s. You must have thought of that because 60s is also a decade of assassinations. Well, you know, I've been obsessively listening to that Jinnah speech that the BBC has. Obsessively. And I went to see this play about drawing the lines, it's called, with Jinnah and Nehru and drawing the lines before partition. And I've been obsessively thinking about assassination, but also Juno's voice on this long-lost tape the BBC So, sorry if it was an absurd mistake. At least I remembered what really happened to me. Yes, absolutely. In any event, tell us about your filmmaking. It goes so back a long way. Yeah, immediately after my undergraduation, I joined a film school. And, um, this is the National Film School. Uh, no, no, I one? went to the Jamia Milia Islamia Mass Communication Centre, which was a yeah. new film school, and I was the second batch. And it was a really turning point in my life. Yeah. I had the most enduring friendships that I built at that time, including the collective that I became part of. Yes. The first ever women's women filmmakers collective was formed in Jamia at that time and this was a moment in, um, I was there for two years to do my masters and in the second year was the kind of um, the government of India passed a bill that would uh, separate Muslim women uh, from um, availing of the benefits of a uniform civil law so that they would be governed by personal law and religious law and so there's a big struggle to try and because then they wouldn't have got the benefits of a divorce law uh, so there's a big struggle to um, fight that because the bill is passed and uh, from within the Muslim community itself there's a big struggle um, and at that time we decided to make our first documentary on this issue and so the group got together and we couldn't have at that time, we were dealing with state-controlled television, stringent censorship. We couldn't have got money for a documentary. But our institution had a very interesting figure at the head who decided to support us. So we literally made the film with funds and equipment given by the institution and other well-wishers. 
And our first film was on the on this Muslim women's bill and the struggle that uh, followed. What is during the emergency? Uh, no, this is 1986. Oh, right, this right, film right. is 1986. The result of which is the new government in power today. Uh, which Ranjini is not a fan of, at I all. can assure <laughs> all listeners. So this period is the rise of Hindu nationalism. And so we became like uh, the side sort of record all the events that were taking place. So the second documentary was on the burning of a Hindu wife. Uh, after her husband dies in a state called Rajasthan in um, India. And the third one was actually on the demolition of the, the, just the moment before the demolition of the, of the mosque in 1992, which snowballed into a major event. Um, and that's the sort of complete, uh, beginning of the destruction of uh, Indian version of secularism. And um, so we did these three films. And then after that, you know, it was very difficult to sustain filmmaking as a as a collective enterprise mm. because there was it was hard to raise money and also do your own work. So we continued to do filmmaking on our own, and I still consider myself to be um, at an advantage with my work, though it may sound arrogant. But I really feel that a relationship to practice was a very major part of my life. Mm. And it allows me to think about film production and film practice very differently from just turning into an image and interpreting mm. it the way we want to. It's the process and that's been my sort of relationship to my writing as well, to always look for the process right. that leads up to something. Is there a way folks could get hold of any of these films, see bits of them? Yes, some of the films are being distributed by women. Make by, by women make movies. By women make movies, which yes. is a New York-based yes. feminist distributor. Yes, so some of them are distributed by them, and some we distribute ourselves. But they were all made on old systems. Yeah, yeah, it's the analog world, and we have not been very good at. Uh, transferring everything, but we do have a record of all our work with us. It'd be wonderful to find some funding to digitize a lot of these artisanal, collective, tendentious documentaries and other forms of filmmaking <laughs> from that period and earlier and later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there is a there is a very major move now in India run by young people to digitize this kind of material which no official archive is actually going to mm. hold on to. Is this noisy? It is, but... Should we try to have Yeah, let's ask it. Yeah? I'll hold this for a second. Okay, so we've moved to a slightly quieter spot. And now let's talk some more about the this interesting question of how this, this world, this history of filmmaking can be sustained, can continue, can be archived, right? and the efforts that can be made to ensure that. But young people are interested in these things. 
And let's also consider this question of your current position. You are a professor of film at uh, JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University. Right. And tell us about how film practice has an impact on that world. Hang on. We've got a slight oddity. Alright, we're okay. Tell us about how film practice, production, the process has an impact on your teaching and scholarship. Okay, so um, the split in uh, the field of. Thank you so much. You're Could I get another cup of tea? Tea. Sure. Was it it's just black, yeah, whatever. It's easy. And we are going to order a little later. Because we're, we're having a third person. Okay. No problem. Right. So for now, just tea. Yeah, for now, just tea. But we're moving on to really serious things later. <laughs> so, um, the, um, in, in January, because it's a um, criticism and theory course, so we don't actually do production. But we make our students do a lot of research on the industry, uh, and um, we, we've, we've given our school a direction in material research oh, yeah. and material culture. So that has that takes us to Bombay all the time. That takes us to the archives all the time, and it's a research-driven program primarily. Where there's an element of primary research that everyone has to do uh, as part of their research work. So there's no infrastructure to teach them film production. We teach them that primarily through uh, encounter with the industry. But now we are trying to develop a course, if, in the, if it's possible in the future, um, something called PhD by practice where they could do 50% um, production and 50% um, a thesis. Uh, but that's not something that can actually get them a job in a university so easily if it's an entirely um, academic program. Um, and, and so we have to look at the possibilities and what will actually benefit the students. But the um, encounter with practice is something that emerges in the way we teach our courses and the program where they have to really think about the, pro the, the this as a major industry which um, and we do it differently from many places I have I don't want to name universities but I have just in the recent past come across many uh, universities even in the UK and in the US doing in industry studies and I don't understand what it means because many of them are consultants for the industry. And, uh, and through that consultancy for the industry, um, it's just, you know, reporting on what is going on in the industry and becoming consultants for the industry. It's no criti critical uh, discourse or criticism. And this is something that started bothering me. In fact, yeah. I was trying to have a conversation with you about that. Well, I was going to ask you, one of the things that interests me about this maneuver, and I didn't realize the part about these people being consultants, is that they've invented this. There was this thing called political economy. I know. Which people have been doing about the film industry all over the world for 70 years. Yes. You can find Indians and Italians and Jamaicans writing about this stuff decades ago. Yes. Who are these people to have suddenly announced, we think it's important to understand the industry, when, sorry, 
you know, trade unionists were writing about the experience of being a cinematographer or an editor. Anthropologists were exploring, thank you very much, what it was like to work in these industries. And people have talked about who owns the money, who lends the money, who has production control, and what the role of the state is. For a century. Uh, absolutely. Where does this come from? But that's not the direction this current industry studies takes always. I'm not talking about everyone, mm. but in, in many places I have noticed this. It's like doing textual analysis of a particular kind, which is just blot out a form of analysis. So industry studies has become just another form of encountering the industry and reporting on what is going on and then ending up as consultants uh, for the for this mm. industry. And this is actually, we are talking about big business over here. Mm. And that I didn't know that. doesn't always exist. Doesn't exist. Let me at that point move on to your first book because we're about halfway through. Because your first book about cinema in the city is an example of something that is trying to mix all these things cultural and social criticism in the context of historical conjunctures, textual analysis in the context of cinema, and political economy in terms of the intersection between these things and the making and distribution of films. So I, wonder, I think it's an exemplary and wonderful book. I wonder if you could just tell people a little bit about it. Uh, well, the, I think uh, the discussion on cities became important in India. Because India was always seen as Gandhi's India, so village India. And uh, the discussion on the city becomes very acute, sharp and pronounced with globalization. Mm. And it's uh, uh, globalization and we're talking about an economy that was pretty much managed uh, internally and the opening up of the market in the late 80s, which was called structural adjustment in India, changed a lot of things and cities became sites of great uh, unrest, transformation um, and uh, you also had a completely different kind of media landscape because prior to glo globalization we had only two state-run television channels. Durdashan. Durdashan. That's it, Dudashan 1 and 2. Two. And uh, everything changed after that. Yeah. So with the transformation, uh, and there's a, you know, there's a change in the urban landscape. And um, I started looking back at cinema as an archive of the city. Because I felt that in scholarship, uh, we had not seen um, discussion on the city. So I used the cinema as the greatest archive of the city to track a history. Um, through this world of images and looking at the intersection of urban life and cinematic practice. Perhaps this is a point where I could ask you to reflect a little on the Edenic Arcadian notion of the rural idyll, but also this as being the real India versus urbanism. In rural India was never a idyllic space. <laughs> it was the most violent, hierarchical, landlord-driven, uh, upper-caste-driven space. There was uh, ordinary people faced a lot of violence. But it acquired this kind of strange iconography uh, through cinema at, at one point. But even in cinema, they've dealt with this question of peasant unrest, uh, inequality. All those issues are there in cinema. So, rural India was 
projected as a space for India yeah. in a Gandhian discourse. And certainly not in a Nehruvian discourse, which no. is more modernization, technology, technocratic yeah. development. But that in the 70s, and this is where I start my project in my first book, you know, yeah. tracks the moment from the 1970s. And the name of the book? Bombay Cinema and Archive of the City. And the publisher? University of Minnesota Press. And in that book, I look at this moment from the 1970s, the rising tide of youth unrest in urban India, and from there look at how the city becomes the site uh, for um, a discussion on the social, and how cinema sort of archived this moment and track it all the way to the contemporary post-globalization. So it's really the transition from a pre-globalized world to a post-globalized world um, through the city. Which is an extraordinary achievement. Uh, the book is brilliantly written, by the way, apart from anything else. Oh, thank you. And it gives you a magical sense of things, even as it's terribly realistic. I remember, Ranjani, 12 years ago, seeing you in Delhi, and you're saying to me, looking at me with that mixture that you often have, of a sardonic glint and a profound seriousness and saying, life is cheap in India. It is. It continues to be. What is the difference between the value of a life in rural versus urban India in, the, in cinema? Well, uh, the in, in Indian cinema, popular cinema, and I'm talking about popular Bombay cinema, mm. for the longest period was a film that spoke on or tried to articulate the issues of the underprivileged. Mm. It was a cinema that tried to articulate some notion of social justice. It was the driving force of popular cinema. That has changed completely. Because now it's a very different kind of situation. So when we talk about, about an urban form now, it is really about a very different kind of class. Um, and, and it has largely to do, it has to a large extent um, this has happened because of a new mode of distribution, um, exhibition, multiplexes. Ordinary people can't afford these theatrical sites at all. And we're talking about ticket prices that are really high. And um, so the cinema as a form has changed. They no longer need audiences to, be, to survive. They now need a multiplex audience to survive. And... Uh, uh, up, uh, and, and so they're raising the films have become about that class. It's no longer about uh, ordinary, ordinary people. people. And what about the influence of POIs or NRIs? Person, P, sorry, PIOs or NRIs, persons of Indian origin or non-resident Indians. Their significance as audiences mm -hmm. stimulating urban films because these are often wealthy and powerful people who are very significant in number now. Yeah. Well, the diaspora and the NRI was very important in the first phase of globalization. They were very, very important in the first phase. And they, the fascination for the Indian family and color and costume was entirely driven by this NRI um, audience base. And the film industry was making 50% of its revenue from its release in the UK and the US and South Africa and the Middle East. 
uh, immediately after globalization. But uh, that phase has now changed. And now it's sort of diversified. The industry has diversified and there are many different kinds of films. So it's no longer about the family. You can't now go back to Bombay cinema and discover an Indian family. It's really not about that anymore. It's about violence. It's about urban life. Um, it's about consumption. Um, it's a very different... It, it really sometimes um, shocks me to see the speed at which something has changed so radically in the last 20 years. So it's really indexing capitalism. Absolutely. And at one level, migration out of the country, but now the emergence with all the violence of its own that produces of a massive and powerful domestic bourgeoisie. Absolutely. Which exercises its power domestically and internationally. I mean, in this country, the power of Indian-based capital is very, very important, as yes. well as British-based yes. Indian capital. Absolutely. One could really look at the history of 20th century capitalism in India and track that very neatly and carefully through what has been going on in the film industry. Now, at theoretical levels, we're not supposed to believe in reflectionism. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But sometimes... It happens, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know whether I want to call. Like, I no longer... This is where I think my work has shifted from my first moment to now. I'm no longer interested in narratives. I'm no longer interested in analyzing images in the way I used to. I am interested in looking at the image as a trace of something. Uh, but that trace of something is not a representation of something outside, but a trace of where did the money come from, what is the site, what are the material practices that have led to something like this. And in the process, build on a larger context of the social and the economic transactions that make cinema possible. So there, that's where I feel my work has now taken a very distinct shift. I feel my earlier work was belonged to a moment and now I'm dealing with another moment where I will continue to be fascinated with images but not in the... I will not look at film through its plots and narratives anymore. I'm more interested in colour, in the objects, in the uh, production design, who are creating these things, why are they doing it like this, where are they getting the material from. So how does this filmic artifact become an uh, image that brings all these different things together? What stimulated you to change? Um, I didn't want to uh, fall into the trap of reflectionism. Because <laughs> it's so tempting with Indian it is, cinema. It is, it is. Of the kind you're describing. Because it's a flip, but it's a very easy way to analyze something and then produce a series of generalizations on the basis of that. And also it never gave me access to an understanding of the concrete ways a uh, concrete uh, world of film practice. Yes. Are, it's a world of practitioners. We're not just talking about the director or the scriptwriter. We're talking about personnel who are building things, who are working, um, you know, like, for instance, my, an example for my, I have a chapter on the railways where the film industry has to take permission from the Archaeological Survey of India from uh, the railway ministry. And there's a whole loop of economic transactions that take place between the tourism industry, 
between the uh, railway ministry Thank you. And, and it's that world of yes. economic and cultural transactions yeah. Yeah. that I was interested in. And how then cinema, cinema, film stories start to respond to these transactions. Yes. It's not like they plan a film and then they decide to look for locations and look for possibilities. It's the infrastructure that pushes cinema in a particular direction. And that is in fact not a reflection of time. It is not. So then yeah, you look at you film very differently. Okay, now it's Kashmir is here. How did they land up in Kashmir? What are the processes that led up to this yeah. moment? Yeah. And then how does Kashmir become embedded as this kind of consensus space for everybody to travel yeah. to freely yeah. with yeah. no discussion about the controversies linked to that side? Now, my understanding is that you've just finished another book that isn't yes. out yet. It's not out yet. We've submitted it to the editors. Can you tell us about this book? Okay, so that's a co-authored book with Nitin Gobin. Mm -hmm. Another who, victim of the podcast. <laughs> who has co uh, worked with you on uh, projects as well. And, and uh, so it's a co-authored book with him on the film industry. And in some ways, Nitin and I have this uh, very interesting relationship where uh, I used to accuse him of being a vulgar political economist at one time and he would accuse me of only being focused on images and now we've sort of morphed into this in-between space. <laughs> uh, uh, so it was been a very productive and interesting... Uh, being called vulgar by Ranjani is... <laughs> definitely the, the kettle calling the pot some kind of colour. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this actually led to um, the book on the industry. Michael Curtin actually um, first asked me and I didn't feel at that time uh, confident of doing it myself um, because I had not really worked on the industry uh, till then. And I asked Nitin, but Nitin at that time had not decided whether he really wanted to work on India. So finally we both realized that we couldn't do this on our own that we would have to do it together. Two vulgar people. Two vulgar people. <laughs> it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> started an alliance in 2002, which is when we first did our field work. And it is really, that's what we realized, um, that our field work became so obsolete within a few years. It became outdated that uh, we had to keep uh, revising because the speed at which things changed technologically, economically, in terms of distribution, networks, everything changed about cinema in the last um, two decades. So we, and I realized the, the difficulties of working on the contemporary industry and how uh, hard it is to keep uh, tap of what is going on. And uh, it's both uh, exhilarating to try and keep mm. do this, but at the same time, it's not an easy thing to do. It's much easier to go back to the 60s. Well, when do you let go? That's the problem. And things are changing all the time. And you yes. know the book's going to take a year after you finish yes. it to appear, because we're still operating with these old-fashioned temporalities. You keep thinking, one more week, yeah. one more archive, one more interview, one more bit of history to happen in order to see whether this or that technological development matters. You know? Yeah. 
And yeah. letting go is difficult when you're doing that very contemporary work, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, letting go is very difficult. And I have um, actually just recently written something about invisible work in the media industries. And I will say that this entire last um, 12 years or 13 years of working on this project and encountering the industry in many different capacities was the learning process for me to switch to my project on the 60s and change track from an earlier form of engagement with cinema because for me now film is something that is created by so many millions of people that unless that world also should uh, emerges in the way we think about film practice and cinema, it's meaningless. So in our book we have a lot on body doubles, stunt artists who work without insurance, um, large scale choreographers, uh, dancers and uh, you know extras and junior artists, um, their unions and their disputes, uh, their, that world is also something we really track. So it's not really the movement of which was always my irritation with a certain kind of political economy that it's a, it flies through with the world of money and we actually don't get the texture of life, uh, well, it says the underbelly the, of the industry. It says it's about the substructure but it's not. Yeah. It says but it, it's actually really tracking money. No, it's tracking money and, and the state and it doesn't look at conflict. Yeah. It's very functionalist because it's not really concerned with what it's like doing these very rigorous, vigorous, complicated, disappointing, painful jobs and what happens on set and off set and all the rest of it. So what, what's the name of the book? Uh, it's a, it's part of a BFI which, uh, BFI series on screen industry. So uh, the India contract was with us. So it's called the Indian screen industry, Indian film industry. And um, it's supposed to be about uh, Bombay, Tamil cinema, Telugu, Bengal, all of them. But the focus primarily is, continues to be Bombay. And this will be British Film Institute, which has had three different publishers since you signed the contract. Yeah. I it's think. With Paul it's Gray. now Palgrave Macmillan, yes. Wonderful. And that presumably won't be out for a little while since you've just well, it submitted it. it was supposed to come out at the end of this year. No, we submitted at the end of last year. Oh. So it's supposed to be out at the end of this year, but it's. I, you know, I won't say anything until we have an assurance about yeah, the publication sure, sure. Now, you've already hinted a bit at an answer to this, but I'd love to follow up on what you just mentioned, namely the essay you recently wrote on invisible labor. Yeah. So, invisible work, I mean, um, and, and a lot of work even on labor. Um, when it is primarily about an abstract notion and I say this because I have come myself out of the tradition of Marxism and I have often felt that there is a certain level of abstraction that uh, prevents people from actually seeing certain things. Don't look at me when you say that. <laughs> but uh, it's um, when you really, how do you do, how does one encounter the contemporary uh, and look at life and work because you know when you go to Bombay the industry is really about the wretchedness of everyday life of all these this vast personnel working in the industry who live really in a, one part of the city mm. and, and the same hierarchies that are in operation in India 
are uh, very much there in the film industry. So yeah. it's the same hierarchy that is uh, uh, invented. So uh, this glorification of either a country or a film industry or a film world of that country is now, I think, that's the kind of ridiculous way to really think about a national cinema like India. And, and it's really about conflict. Like we study conflicts and uh, unrest everywhere else, we should use the film industry to track the same kind of conflict. But when you're teaching your students and you want them to think about stunt doubles yeah. and makeup artists, and the physical experience of whitening skin. Do they say, behind their hands, I'm here to learn how to make movies or understand movies. I want to look at great directors. I want to look at Satyajit Ray. I want to look at Martin Scorsese. I don't care about this other stuff. That doesn't interest me. Or are they really engaged by it? No, well, maybe some people may say that, but I do think that the discipline has changed. And I think, uh, Toby, you also managed to play a major role in that, in uh, exploding some things. And I think uh, textual analysis or a kind of fascination for um, um, uh, certain kinds of artistic practices, I have nothing against that. I think that should also be part of this entire field. Like any discipline should have different kinds of things but it cannot be the dominant paradigm so when we talk to the students we say this is what the discipline is now it includes some those who want to do that can do that it includes this includes this includes that and i have realized in india that our students at least and i didn't think that we i mean my colleague ira bhaskar and i set up this department and we have often said this about that we should feel proud about the fact that our students have become solid researchers wanting to do material research even for their MPhil program they go off to either the archive or the film industry they want to meet real people and get those narratives into their projects so really that has been a direction we have taken so if there are people who have criticism that's going to happen if some people want sure. to do that but it's but i have not noted i've not felt yes, that this was a problem okay okay that's very interesting that's very good in fact it's a bigger problem in the uk <laughs> is it so tell us about what your experience has been over the last what six months uh, well, nine months. Nine months that you've been here. What's your experience been of academic life here? I'm not asking you to speak necessarily about the University of Westminster where you're housed, but you just made a comment about British film studies, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you're going to get me into trouble, Toby. <laughs> no, let's let's exclude Westminster. From no, this. no, it's not ju about Westminster, but it's. Uh, I do get uh, upset that the MA program in the UK is the cash cow, uh, and sort of they're drawing people from all over the world, making them pay so much money, and the university is running so much on this kind of a system. Um, and. Um, and in that one year education, they don't really actually understand or experience the uh, complexities of this discipline today. So they may, in that one year, they end up encountering a very old-fashioned form. 
mm. of the field. And, uh, and from the uh, conferences that I have noticed, mm -hmm. there are some very interesting conferences, but I think the dialogue uh, between the world of film and the world of media, which I think that you can't have study cinema in isolation anymore. That whole enterprise has collapsed with the digital. And and this moment, contemporary moment, should actually allow us to think about the entire history of the 20th century uh, experience of cinema as something that was always entrenched and located in other sites. And trying to pull cinema out as a separate form was the problem right at the beginning and certainly now that is showing up even more. So it's a broader understanding of film, media, photography, um, uh, you know, cell phones and all these technologies that are playing an important role today. One can't separate this. Can I ask you about that in the context of the opening up of television? Mm -hmm. You mentioned when Dordashan 1 and 2 were the only channels on offer. One feature of neoliberalization in India in the last two decades has been the explosion in the number of television stations and the kinds of things that they do. What's been the impact on the film industry? With the, uh, yeah, you mean after the opening up? Yeah. Um, it's a, it was a very major impact. The first 10 years of cable um, was um, uh, the relationship of the television industry uh, to the film industry was pretty sort of entrenched and film-based programming was driving television. That has changed. Television has its own economy, its own programming and soaps and um, all kinds of reality TV just like anywhere else. So now because television has its own economy of the family for instance and the family film has disappeared because nobody wants to pay money to go and see a family film and the family is staring at you on television all the time through all these soaps and uh, programs. So it's been a major um, uh, change and now a lot of people from the industry are... <laughs> the industry uses television all the time. Uh, unlike in many other parts of the en endorsements, uh, film endorsements, uh, advertising, in, in India stars are major brand ambassadors and um, and that's one part of the work in the industry book that we have done, the relationship between endorsements, television programming, film stars. I've just become the London brand ambassador for an Indian magazine. Oh really? Which magazine this is week, this? week, last week. I just became, I'm the second brand ambassador, there's one in India and I'm one in London. Okay. Thumbprint. Oh. It's a women's on digital magazine from the Northeast. And that I sometimes run? write for. Okay. Is it run by Daisy or no? No, no. Teresa Raymond. Okay. Great. That's good. <laughs> I'd never heard the term brand ambassador until I became one, and now I've heard it yes. for the second time in three or four days. Because in India, it plays a big part. It's a big part. What about being a repertory source for cinema? You know, one of the great things for Hollywood when television began after the initial anxiety and threat was that suddenly there was a new space to run old movies and make more money and get Hollywood known for its past as well as its present. That, that, ha that has happened. We have a, uh, 
Bombay flashback channel which plays all the old black and white films and uh, you have um, film based programming that continues uh, but the the maximum time is taken by uh, television by the film industry now to talk about their contemporary projects all their releases uh, just before they release they start appearing in all kinds of reality television shows the stars start to appear in product placement yeah. of human beings yeah. human beings so the, all the big stars appear many of the big stars run um, uh, television like how to become a millionaire was made into an indian version and our two top male stars were the uh, anchors for the program so that's not something that you see easily in the us uh, you won't have the big stars uh, playing such a big role on television so easily, but it became a lucrative thing for them because they got all the all the advertising camp companies wanted to sponsor programs that had the big stars. We've just had this monumental election, the biggest election in world history, that saw the right, the Hindu right, take over. A triumph for neoliberalism. A triumph for Mr. Modi, who until 13 seconds ago was considered virtually a terrorist and persona non grata in Britain and the US, and now is an honored figurehead, <laughs> a mortal figurehead. Yeah. What do you think this suggests for the future in film terms? Oh, well, um, the future at the moment when, when this happened, we were literally not sleeping because, uh, you know, but we never expected that in our lifetime uh, something like this would happen. We knew he was going to win, but it was going to be a coalition. We didn't expect an absolute majority, which is what they have. It's the, a landslide compared to other moments when yeah. the, the right has done well. In terms of vote percentage, it's still only 31%. Right. So that's the saving grace. So that's the problem with uh, any kind of democratic structure that you all. The numbers have a different uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, relationship to this. So it seemed very bleak and it, it is bleak even now because um, more I've not even thought in terms of film uh, but um, in terms of everyday life it seems that they are really moving uh, quickly to the exactly what we thought we were going to do. Um, but India is also a vast country. It's also a complicated country. And you've got different states and different groups and all kinds of things. So we have to see how long this um, honeymoon will last. Because he has made promises. And he has made promises to to the corridors of big business and he's made promises to the people. Now the two cannot be brought together. This fundamental problem. He can't satisfy both. So he's sitting with all these um, major industrial figures and uh, and he wants to satisfy the uh, lack of employment and other kinds of problems. He's not going to be able to do it. He this, it's right. going to lead up to a Crisis. Yeah, where much of capital is actually quite secular, isn't interested in this sectarian religiosity and they don't ethnicity. Care. It's not something that they care about. It doesn't matter to them. And of course, redistribution is far from guaranteed given a laissez faire model. Absolutely. 
So those are a couple of areas that are obvious ones. And his model is China. He wants to be like China. He thinks that it's going to become like China, but uh, it's just not going to. It's, it's India is India, and it's not going to uh, work out. Um, nothing is going to uh, work the way he uh, wants it to go. But one thing I do want to say: it's hard to predict anything right yeah. now. Yeah. And I think uh, there's been a complacency in all uh, forms of analysis in mm. India about, you know, there was never, in December when I was there, everyone said, there's no way Modi is going to come to power right now. And in five months, this has happened. And one thing we realized, the media was absolutely central mm. in this entire campaign. They had so much money. They used the media. They used hologram images of the Modi in different parts of the country and he used Twitter, he has this huge mob following on Twitter. So the entire media machinery and the cult, the, this is a kind of uh, vote for a cult fix, mm. not even for a party, mm. it's for him. And that was actually managed by the media. So. We really need to take the media very seriously now and see what's happening. And we've just heard that two of the major television channels have been bought by Ambani. He's like buying off, they're buying off everything. So with the result is many of the anchors and uh, reporters are leaving. Because what kind of news is that going to be if you're going to have Modi followers owning all these television stations? The media really needs to be thought of very differently. It's a scary time. It's a scary time. Well, Ranjani, thank you very much. It's a slightly down note on which to conclude. So let me say that I would love to invite you back, perhaps with knitting, if we can get you in the same room, when your new He's book comes out. coming in July. Will oh, you great. Be here? I will be here. So... Let's have a round table about your new book. Excellent. Fantastic. That's a great idea. Thank you.